say that. Good morning, church. Today we'll be working through and studying a passage from the book of 1 John. So if you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. If you're using one of the pew Bibles that's underneath your seat, or maybe it's in the seat right in front of you, that's located on page 959. So again, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. And 1 John is one of the first three books that John is writing after he wrote his gospel. So John has told us this account of Jesus and all the great things he's done. But now John is saying, okay, there's more that I have to say. There's things happening that I need to address and write to you all about so that you can be assured of your faith. So again, we're reading from 1 John chapter 1 today, page 959 on your pew Bibles. Please follow along with me as I read out loud. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete." This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you plant your word in us, Lord. You put it in our hearts and deliver us from sin through your Son. We praise you for this love that you've revealed to us through your Son, Lord. And we ask that you give us grace this morning, as we open your word, that we both be doers and hearers of your word, Lord. May our hearts be opened. May they be softened to receive the truths that are in this text. And Lord, allow the words that we hear today to not be from me or from my origin, but only from you and through your Spirit. Bring us into a posture of humility, Lord. It's in all in your Son's name we pray. Amen. In 2012, the very popular and well-known restaurant chain, known as Chick-fil-A, was looking to expand to a new location in the city of Chicago. They wanted to bring more and more people the joy of eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich, preferably with no pickles and fries, of course. And so they were looking at one particular spot. It was a neighborhood a little bit north, about 10 minutes north of downtown Chicago. And this neighborhood is called Logan Square. And it's a very nice area, and they said, the officials were thinking, this is going to be a great place for us to open a new restaurant. So they're going through, they're submitting permits, they're getting everything set. And then they hit a roadblock. The, basically, the acting mayor of the area, his name is Joe Moreno, he said, no, 
you cannot open a Chick-fil-A here. He blocked their permits. And he blocked them because he didn't like the values that Chick-fil-A held on to. He didn't like that Chick-fil-A was built upon values and fundamental things that he didn't like for his neighborhood. And specifically, he didn't like that Chick-fil-A held to the biblical view of marriage. He didn't want a company to be in his neighborhood that would be holding to such a view. And so he told them that, hey, you can't open your Chick-fil-A unless you change this position, unless you change your value here. I want you to imagine if you're applying for a job, and it's your dream job, it's the best job you've ever seen, and they tell you you're the perfect fit, you have all the skills required, and they want to hire you, but there's just one thing. They know that you go to church, and they know that you're a Christian, and so therefore they won't hire you. Would you give up your faith then so that you could have this new job? No, you wouldn't, because you understand that the love of Christ and the all-surpassing knowledge of Christ is far greater than whatever job and whatever you might get from this job. You understand that Christ is greater than the things in this world. And Chick-fil-A was the same way. They said, okay, yeah, we're we're missing out on a lot of money here that we could possibly have by opening up this Chick-fil-A. But they valued what made their company special, what made them unique, more than the opportunity here to expand and make a new restaurant. Because their values were so fundamental, they recognized them as so important to who they were in their identity and what made them unique as a company. And the company is constantly defending their beliefs. In this case, in many other cases, even when people are asking them, when they're giving pressure for Chick-fil-A to change. And similarly today, we see the same thing happening in this book, in the book of 1 John. We see how John is defending his beliefs because there's people that are pressuring him, that are challenging Christians and what they believe. They're challenging Christians on, what do you really believe about Christ? Is Christ Did he really come as a person? Was he really resurrected? And they're saying things about Christians, and they're challenging them to think about sin differently. People are making sin seem like no big deal. They're challenging what sin is. 1 John is one of the last books, as probably you're returning. You saw it as one of the last books in your Bible. And it's also thought to to be one of the last books to be written. So we don't know an exact date, but it was probably sometime around the year 90 A.D., which would have meant that Christians have been around for nearly 50 years. So Christ died, and now 50 years later, people are still believing and joining and worshiping Christ together. And in the same way that Chick-fil-A is facing beliefs, or facing opposition to their beliefs, Christians now 50 years later are also starting to receive backlash. People are starting to say these things about Jesus that aren't true, and that are making sin a not big de- seem like not a big deal. And John is writing in this text to remind those people that he was writing to, but also us, that that Jesus is the true Son of God that forgives our sins. He wants us to remember the core truth that Jesus is the Son of God that forgives our sins. Have you ever heard someone say anything that was wrong, that was untrue about Jesus? I had a friend in high school that was a Muslim, and he told me that Jesus was just a good teacher, a good person that had a lot of good things to say that we should follow, but he wasn't really the Son of God. Can you think of ways that people have made seem seem like a no big deal, or that make the effects of sin uh, minimized? Maybe you've heard someone say, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. Or maybe you've heard someone say, well, I'm not really doing anything that bad. It's just one lie, or 
I, it's only a lie when the other person's over there murdering. So therefore, my sin isn't really that big of a deal. Those are the kind of statements that John is specifically addressing here in this text. And he wants us to hold on to that core truth that Jesus is the true Son of God who forgives our sins. And he starts right in verse 1 by addressing things that people are saying about Christ that aren't true. He writes that, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands. John here is giving us what is called empirical evidence, meaning that he's giving things that he really saw, touched, and heard of. He isn't saying, he isn't giving us some logic pattern like, okay, well, I know this is true and that's true, so therefore I'm concluding that this is true. No, he's telling us that he really, himself, all the other disciples, and everyone else that was around during Christ, they really saw, they really heard, and they really touched Christ. How may they have heard Jesus? Well, they heard him. They heard his public teachings. They heard him at the Sermon on the Mount. They heard him outside of the, the synagogue. They heard him outside the temple. So many times where they heard Jesus speak to them about very important things. How may they have seen Jesus? Well, they saw him do miracles. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him heal people. How may they have touched Jesus? I think of the example of when the disciple Thomas, when after Jesus was resurrected, he didn't believe that Jesus was really back. But Jesus came to him and showed him his hand and his side, and Thomas really felt Jesus. John gives us a very clear example of how we have verifiable observations and experiences of Christ. But John also says in this first verse that Christ was from the beginning. And what I immediately think of is, well, where else in the Bible does it say that Christ is from the beginning? And so you don't have to churn with me, but I'll just read it out loud for, for us. In Colossians, in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul is giving us this very important information that Christ has been around for all time. Paul writes in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. In this little passage here in Colossians from Paul, we see two things. First, in verse 15, we see how Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then in verse 16, we see how he was around when everything was created. John is reminding us here with what Paul said about Jesus being around from all time. But John is also referencing himself. In the Gospel of John, the very first thing he starts off is by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. John wants us to be sure that Christ was around from the beginning of creation, from all time, and will continue to be around Then in our passage today in 1 John, he continues to say, well, what was made manifest from the beginning? What was revealed to us? We know that we have seen and heard and touched something, but what was it? Verse 2 says, life, the life was made manifest. But then it continues to say, well, it wasn't just life, it was eternal life. The end of verse 2 says, we proclaim to you the eternal life 
that was with the Father that came down and was revealed to us. And when was this eternal life manifest? Maybe you're thinking, well, when? When Christ died on the cross and resurrected is when we were revealed to the truth that we have eternal life in Christ. So therefore, let us believe in Christ. Let us believe in this true account that we have of Jesus because we know that the Bible isn't written based on stories or myths or things that they just thought about. No, the Bible was written based on what they actually experienced, what was actually going on, what John saw, what he heard, and what he touched. If you were to exit the service today, and you go to the library, and you maybe you pick up a book, and it's called How You Can Become the Next Biggest Music Star, and you read this book, and you're like, okay, this is great. I'm going to go and be the next Taylor Swift or something like that. And then you start working it out, but then you realize that the author of the book has actually never even recorded a song. Would you then actually go and follow through on what that person told you to do in the book? No, of course not. You would want to read a book that was written by, I don't know, Taylor Swift or Michael Jackson or Elvis Presley, someone that has actually gone and done that thing. And that same way of thinking is applicable here in this text. John is telling us, listen, I have all the credibility in the world to tell you about Jesus. So therefore, believe. Listen to what I said and believe it because I was there. I've heard, I've seen, and I have touched Christ. And if you're not a Christian, and maybe that's because you aren't sure if Christ was really a person or it's too hard to believe that he resurrected, well, let these words here in this book reassure you and reveal to you how real Christ really was. Then the big question is, so what? What, what do I do with that? Well, verse 3 continues, and, it, and John explains here why this has all been told and why it's all so important. And that's because, in verse 3, we see, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Now, fellowship is a word that we, th- we use a couple times around here at Brainerd. We, we say we have fellowship with one another. After the service, we have fellowship out in the lobby with the snacks and the coffee. And those are all great things, and encourage you to do those. But John here is talking about a fellowship that's a little bit different, that's a little greater He's talking about a fellowship that extends beyond just one church, but rather to all churches, to the entire church of God, regardless of a particular disagreement or difference in a church to church. And he explains fellowship this way so that we can understand in the, joy, the shared joy in, in between all of the saints, all of the Christians, in knowing that Christ is real. In verse 4, John writes, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants you to be joyful that we have such an assurance of our salvation. That's the response that he has himself, but also is encouraging all of his readers to have, knowing that Christ is real. I want you to think about what has the happiest moment in your life been? Maybe it was your wedding day, or maybe it was the day you were finally able to retire and do whatever you wanted every single day. John's happiest moment in his life is when he was joined to Christ, and that's clear in this fourth verse. And he's saying to all of us, I want you who read these words to be as joyful as I am that you have such an assurance of Christ. 
So how can you be joyful? How can you leave today and be joyful in our salvation? We can be joyful in our singing through the songs we sing in this service, singing them loudly, singing them wholeheartedly, knowing that Christ hears our praise. We can be joyful in our care for each other by listening to others when they speak and by genuinely caring for what they have to say. And we can be joyful in our workplaces, in our classroom, in our home life, and just everything we do and putting forth our best effort to then demonstrate that we are creations of God. And let us be so joyful, so joyful that when others see us that aren't Christians, they may ask us, why are you so happy? So then you can then present to them the truth of why you are happy, that you know Christ and that he has transformed your life. So these words here of scripture give us the assurance of Christ and his salvation that we then need, that we need to then be joyful. And these first four verses are the first way that John responds to ways that Christians are being challenged. And he tells us and reminds us that despite what anyone might say about Christ, that we can be sure that Jesus is the true, real Son of God that came to forgive our sin. Then John continues in this rest of this chapter and talks about another thing, another way that people are saying untrue things about Christianity, and that's that people are making sin seem like no big deal. People are saying things about, about how sin, the, the effects of sin are different, or they're being minimized, or that a sin isn't really a sin. And John wants us to know that God is light. In verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and that in him is no darkness at all. What does it mean for God to be all light and no dark? It means that he's completely pure, that he's completely holy, flawless, glorious. It means that there's no defect or imperfection in him. The end of verse 5 there, it says, And in him is no darkness at all. And so here, John is giving us just a glimpse into the character and nature of God, and then calls us to respond to that. And the Bible even tells us elsewhere how light and darkness can't be mixed. There is no mixture between light and darkness. In 2 Corinthians, and again, you don't have to churn with me, but I'll just read it out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul is asking a question. He says, What fellowship has light with darkness? John here is saying, none. There is absolutely none. There is no light where there is darkness, and there is no darkness where there is complete light. So if the Bible is complete, so if if the Bible tells us that God is completely light with no darkness, then how can we claim to be with God but continue to walk in darkness? What would you say if a friend told you that it was wrong to eat candy, that you couldn't eat candy anymore, but then when you got in their car, there were candy wrappers everywhere? You would probably call them a liar or a hypocrite, because obviously it doesn't work for someone to hold something to say, you can't do this, but then if they don't do it themselves. And when we pro- so when we proclaim to know God, but continue to walk in darkness, we're acting just like our hypocritical friend. We're saying, this is what we should be doing. This is who we are following, but then we don't actually do it. 
We lie when we proclaim to know Christ, but do not follow in his ways. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we're following God, but we walk in darkness, we then lie and do not practice the truth. So how might you be walking in darkness today? Do you prioritize your work over spending time with other Christians, spending time reading God's word, spending time in prayer? Do you reject or ignore a Christian brother or sister who is caring for you, who wants to speak truth into you? Do you push them off? Do you run away from them? Or do you turn to worldly pleasures when life gets tough? These are all really easy ways that we walk in darkness and that we don't live up to what we proclaim to believe. Walking in darkness is then acting ignorant of the truths that we believe. John gives us all these truths and this assurance of faith, and he walks us through and says, you can be confident in knowing Jesus. But then if that faith doesn't transform our lives, if it doesn't make us change our life, and we continue to walk in darkness, then we are acting like we didn't even hear or believe the truths in the first place. And we can be joyful all we want in Christ and in his salvation and have fellowship with others. But if our life is still filled with immorality and impurity and recklessness, then the truths we hold on to really never had a grip on our hearts. When you act like this, you are living a lie, and no one wants to live a lie. There is no truth in the profession or practice of someone that lives a lie. But John doesn't just leave us here with this gloomy, very convicting message. He then, in verse 7, goes on to say, walk in the light. In verse 7, he writes, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk in the light because we know Christ, because we've made a profession. We choose to not walk in darkness, but to walk in light. And so what can you do to walk in light so that we can avoid walking in darkness? Walking in light looks like living every day in obedience and awe of God and his commandments. Walking in light looks like confessing when we sin, when we mess up. And we do that in many ways. We don't just confess in our service. We confess outside of our service to other Christians in our own prayer time. Walking in the light looks like being joyful in our faith, just like John told us in verse 4. May your joy be complete because we walk in light knowing Christ. And walking in the light looks like loving our enemies and everyone else that's around us. Verse 8 then continues and tells us how people are still continuing to misrepresent sin and are making sin seem like no big deal. Verse 8 reads, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We can faithfully walk in the light, but if we think that then we can become perfect, or that we would have no sin at all, and become light like God, then we also lie, because we are not perfect. We can't become perfect, no matter how well we do in preventing and churning from sin. And when we say that we can, we only deceive ourselves by thinking that we could be perfect, that we are perfect. Because regardless of how good a person you may be, or how many good things you do within your life, you are still sinful. 
I think that it's particularly challenging because I don't profess, I don't say that I'm perfect, but there are many ways that myself and all of us say that we are perfect without even realizing it. So how might you think that you have no sin like John is describing here? Do you ever create excuses for sin? Or do you ever deny a sin? Do you ever say something along the lines, well, it was just this one time, or it was okay because X, Y, or Z? Do you ever find yourself discrediting or minimizing the effects of sin? Similar to how we started, is saying, well, it's just a lie. It's not that big of a deal. It's, it's not as bad if I were to go and murder someone. These are all ways that we claim to be perfect. Matthew Henry, who was a very famous preacher, he's preached from the age 24 all the way to his death, and he wrote many commentaries, many Bible studies. It was very helpful to the church for many, many years. And he had this to say about Christianity. He said, the Christian religion is the religion of sinners. And I think that's really powerful. But also, not only does Matthew Henry say this, but it comes up in the Bible everywhere. We see it in Genesis. The fall, when the fall happened, we saw how everyone was perfect, how the world was perfect, but then sin came in and tainted everyone's life and tainted the entire world. We see it then a little later in Genesis, in chapter 8, verse 21, where it writes, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his very youth. We also see it in Job 15, and Job is asking questions. He's asking, can a man be pure? Can a man be righteous? John says, no, we cannot be without sin. And then finally, in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Christian life is a life that is constantly seeking Christ and his forgiveness and constantly going to Christ in confession. If we say that we have no sin or that we are perfect, we are eliminating the need for Jesus, the need for a Savior, and elevating ourselves above God. So Christian, let's be careful to not, just, to not minimize our sin and to go to God when we do. But verse 10 says that not only do we make ourselves liar, not only do we lie and deceive ourselves when we say that we don't have sin, but we also make God a liar. Verse 10 writes, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How are we representing God to a non-Christian by saying that we have not sinned? What image of Christianity are you revealing to them if they see you go to church and they see you profess Christianity, but then later they see you swear in traffic or do some other kind of sin? Rather than revealing to that non-believer that you are a transformed person that is, that is um, believed in Christ and that is in need of a Savior because of our sin, we now show that Christian that we are actually not in need of Christ. Can you imagine how a close friend of yours would feel if they heard you spreading lies about them? They'd probably feel awful, sad, upset, angry. It wouldn't be good. It'd be a bad situation. How much worse then would it be if God were to hear us spreading lies about him? That is the danger we run into when we think that we can be perfect. But thankfully, God has given us the ultimate sacrifice. God has sent His Son, His one and only Son, to die on the Christ for to die to die on the cross for us, so that our sins would be forgiven 
And all it takes is that we believe in his Son, and you will receive eternal life. And so John here gives us a huge, major application, a major call. In verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, John here could have used any words. He says God is faithful and just. He could have written God is kind and loving, or God is gentle and patient to forgive us our sins. But he chose faithful and just. And this is why. He, he chose the word faithful because God is committed to his covenant, to the covenant that he made with his people, which is the promise to forgive us if we confess our sins. And then he uses the word just because God is just. God says that he's just in many places in the Bible. And so by using the word just here, John is highlighting the fact that God is consistent with his character. He's living up to who he says he is. And it is only right for God to then forgive us our sin and cleanse you of sin. God would be unjust if he didn't forgive our sin. And then our confession would be meaningless. Because if God isn't going to confess us, then why would we even bother? But thank goodness that God is just. And he forgives and cleanses our sin when we turn to him. We aren't perfect, but we are forgiven, and that is such a good thing to know. So let us accept the Lord's forgiveness. We don't just do this as a church, but we do this outside of the church, with others, with our family, with our friends, with other Christians that we know and that we trust. We see in this passage how John has told us how important it is to view sin properly and to be alert to how others can convince us, how they can lead us away to truly viewing sin as awful as it is. We need to remember that sin is awful and how it separates us from God. And when we try to justify, when we minimize the effects of sin, it's ruining our relationship with the Lord. And so we see in this entire passage is how John is addressing a people that are in crisis. A crisis where their beliefs are being challenged, where their values are being rebuked, and where their faith is being opposed. And John is telling them these things because others are saying things that are false and that contradict the very truths that John has given them earlier in his gospel. And he wants to remind them that Jesus is the true Son of God who forgives our sins. And he does this by encouraging us to recognize the real person of God, to be confident, sorry, the real person of Christ, and that he really came to earth, and to be confident in that, and to take away any doubts we may have, any doubts of him really offering us eternal life. And he writes to us to encourage us to confess, to repent of our sins. And when we do all of this, we too then can rejoice in the fact that Christ died for us and that your eternal life is only in him, and that our sins are forgiven. Join me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have seen and heard of your eternal life, which has existed for all time. In you is no darkness at all, like your text says, Lord, and how grateful are we that you are the true God who is all light. We praise you for revealing your Son to us and for giving us your salvation. 
Lord, fill us with joy and strengthen us as we walk in your light today and the rest of the week. Encourage us with your words that we have heard and allow them to transform our life. This is all in your son's name, Lord, we pray. Amen.